look, digital is a tool. So ultimately, it's a, it's a powerful tool, and AI is an especially powerful tool to make interaction with government and the processes of government uh, leaner and simpler. Indeed, if we use it right. Hello and welcome to the Lithuanian Dream podcast. My name is Ruta Nojokaita, and today we will talk about Estonia. When it comes to empowering citizens through public sector technology, Estonia is leading the way by a distance. The tiny former Soviet Republic, with a population of 1.3 million, located to the north of Latvia and across to the Baltic Sea from Finland, is arguably the most advanced digital society in the world. I actually wanted to make this interview for a long time and I was wondering who should I invite because the topic about digitalization and so many things Estonia is implementing in public sector is quite difficult. However, I ended up finding perfect candidate for our interview. He is the CIO, so Chief Information Officer of Estonia, Sim Sikut, also titled as Deputy Secretary General for IT and Telecom in Ministry of Economic Affairs and Communications since March 2017, so four years and a bit. His role is to set the strategy and policies in areas of digital government and society in Estonia. We're going to speak about a lot of things, but I think the one that I'm really interested in and would like to emphasize today is e-voting. This is a topic that is really important for Lithuanian diaspora and everybody who lives in Lithuania. So we really going to speak about it for a little bit in the middle of the interview. And as well, we will talk about taxation system, about the mentality of Estonians, how they deal with failure, and why do they want to be first? Is it something about the title or is it something about the challenges and how they face them? So I'm really glad uh, to invite you to join us on this conversation. Hello, Sim. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ruta. So I think it's the first time I meet a CIO of the country. Oh, really? Uh, could you, yes. Um, yeah, so I have met a lot of CIOs of companies here in Berlin and in Lithuania. But for the first time, I see this title uh, on a country level. So have you met other? Do you have a club of C CIOs of uh, countries? <laughs> or No, indeed. I mean, uh, I'm not the first and the last one. <laughs> so there's, uh, I think, many governments around the world who have basically made this sort of position where somebody is at helm of, you know, digital development in their public sector. Some of us are called um, heads of digital agencies. Some of us are digital chief digital officers. But we still keep the sort of CIO because we have a lot of tech arm as well uh, in my portfolio. But yeah, so that's, that's quite a few of us. Amazing, and especially now in the world that is becoming more and more digital, uh, these positions are especially important. So how do you start your day and how does your day look like? Do you uh, use robots at work? Everything is uh, made with apps? Or? I think, uh, you know, as a CIO, well, I'm, I'm also myself a deputy secretary general in a ministry, in the Ministry of Economic Affairs. So basically in a sort of, you know, 
in an executive role, all the days are the same. Lots of meetings, lots of talking, uh, trying to get things going or, you know, fixing problems, right? So um, my daughter just said the other day that, you know, she will never do a job as boring as mine. <laughs> but obviously, because that's what she sees is, you know, meetings and talkings and, you know, these days virtual meetings all the time. Now, look, but long story short, what is our role or, or my role as well as we see it is to... Um, basically keep the innovation going right and at the same time obviously keep also what we have built going so that's why the sort of not just the focus on digitization and digital track but also the the it part is important as well making sure that all the digital government keeps running smoothly as well and then we build the next levels on top of it all the time yes and i was reading a little bit about the initiatives uh, you are doing as a CIO. So one of it is uh, Estonian Information System Authority. You work with it and basically uh, what it means that there is one system in Estonia that manages all public services for people. So it's very easy, user-friendly as I understand it. Um, and then another major project I have discovered was that uh, you created a road together with others AI strategy for Estonia. I think this is quite astonishing. Could you tell us more about both projects and any other major projects you create? So, first of all, on the Estonian Information Systems Authority, that's an agency that indeed handles all the platforms uh, that our digital government and, and government is built on. So things like national digital identity, things like uh, X-Road, which is a countrywide platform for data sharing and so forth, a citizen portal. They're also a cybersecurity agency. So my role has not been that much to build that agency, but rather to keep it going and take the platforms to the next level. I think in Estonian digital journey, platform approach has been a very fundamental part. Building things up to be shared between agencies makes everyone go ahead faster, cheaper and better, right? Like that. So they can focus on really making the transition or the transformation digitally and not don't have to worry about okay how do i build authentication how do you build data sharing so the platforms are there you just you know build use those as building blocks as lego blocks and build on top of them national AI strategy indeed has been a very big part of our work in the last two years basically we had the um, hunch a hypothesis that we could make much use of ai even with the current state of ai development in the world in our government because our core challenge in Estonia, and I'm sure Lithuanians can relate, is our size. We have to be a fully-fledged country with 1.3 million people, right? So we have to be very effective in how we do things. And even with today's state of machine learning, we can take this effectiveness, efficiency to the next level again. So, you know, the fact that we can just now do automatic stenograms or protocols of parliamentary hearings, right? So, again, saves quite a bit of time, you know, from personnel there. So simple example like that, something our phones can do basically, right? Otherwise, so we jumped at this opportunity. We basically saw it as a chance to experiment. And through the experiments, we saw that the actually, yes, the hypothesis worked. We can be better with AI. So now it's a fully fledged strategy of ours to do more with AI in public sector. There's several things happening on, on these fronts. Yes, and as a government official, you already continue what was previously done by other politicians. And I oh, was yeah. reading, a, yes, it started um, in 1996. Some of the resources say when um, your ambassador to the US uh, came back to Estonia and said, now we need to think about computers and internet as a serious thing of the future. And then certain public policies were imposed and created. And 
And that kind of shift is seen by other governments as one of the best shifts as uh, everything else continued happening. And then actually it wasn't that easy for you guys because uh, after you created e-voting in 2005, your country was even attacked in 2007 by cyber attack. So as a person who came to the leadership position, a big leadership position, after all these things that happened to Estonia, how does it feel for you? Do you feel a certain responsibility of continuing bringing big things? Or did you actually study these lessons about cyber attacks and now try to really implement it and say, I don't know, uh, show the leadership for other countries that things are possible? No, no, absolutely. I stand on many shoulders. First of all, my team, of course, but secondly, obviously, exactly the predecessors before me. I think in the line of Estonian government, I'm fourth or fifth generation now in terms of uh, this sort of leadership like that. And on, on, let's say, administrative level, so there have been more politicians in that time. But look, that's why I hinted before, I mean, we have a dual role, a dual challenge. Well, first of all, is to, yes, so obviously keep all that has built, constantly iterate that better and make it better and, you know, keep working better. But at the same time, always, of course, search for the next level, job the game, right, so to speak. So, you know, that's why we brought in AI. That's why we are working now on to redesign a lot of the government services to make them proactive and work invisibly in the back end. It's not just enough in our view that they are available, that I can do everything digitally with my government in terms of interacting with my government. Actually, we want to make stuff happen more or less automatically for me, right, in the back end. So if my child is born, yes, I can do all the things online right now from the hospital, but why do I need to do them at all? Perhaps government can turn to me and in one interaction, I get everything done. So so we are redesigning a lot of that. So we had, we had to find the next levels. And, and so a lot of my job is to exactly take us to that next level again. So that's, again, part of standing on the shoulders is that you constantly try to move the game forward in a way. And I think a lot of C chief digital officers, a lot of CIOs are, are tasked with to basically say that, look, I mean, uh, you have to somehow do the transformation. For us, transformation is a never-ending story. So in my role, I have not had the luck of starting it. A lot of low-hanging fruits have been picked before. But exactly, what's the next stage? And taking us there has, been, has defined my journey. So how do you plan for the future? Is it 10 years, five years plan or six months? And uh, do you have some kind of a committee where you discuss future projects and dream together maybe? So we have to plan ahead for quite a long time on a very, very high level. That's also because we all, for good or bad, use uh, European funds in European Union, right? To basically boost innovation and, and up the game digitally. So, and these have to work with, you know, seven to 10 year horizon on a, on a very high level. But very concretely said, we don't actually like to plan ahead more than two, three years ahead of time. Things change so fast. So this is what we are learning in practice as well. So, you know, in many ways, we try to rather have, a, let's say, a rolling and an agile strategy for the, for to use that buzzword. So, you know, we think about a few years ahead, try to get some, try to build a future in a, in a future direction, see what happens, then iterate from the, the next stage. So if we had this vision that, look, I mean, our government can be AI powered, right? So that's a very long term view. We started with a three year plan or two year plan to say, hey, let's see if we can get the ball rolling. Right. So now that has worked. We have gained momentum in terms of AI use in our public sector. Now we set the next two, three year stage. Right. So, so that's my sort of idea in, in an actual strategy. We don't go beyond and things change so fast. I mean, that's the reason. And if you can just bring your comparison, I started as a CIO in 2017. 
before that, I used to work for years in, in, in the same business, so to speak. I was advising prime ministers on digital development stuff. When we were doing a longer-term view in 2014, 13-14, we had a very, I remember this clearly, we had a very conscious discussion with stakeholders and experts in a sense, look, will AI be a thing? In looking ahead, you know, seven, ten years, everybody said, no, 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 it will be a stuff in, la- stuff in the labs. Jump forward three years, I come to the job, 2017, it's a thing on the street. So you, you never know what pops up. We have to rather stay flexible to use the opportunities as they pop up. And that's the strategy. A lot of my work revolves around how do we make the machinery of our government ready to, to change and jump at the opportunities to be nimble enough, to keep experimenting with new stuff and so on. And your last bit about, so we don't really do committee stuff that much. I mean, I think a big part of the Estonian way of doing things has to be, you know, very community-based as opposed to very formal, right? So we have been also also criticized for that (laughs) sometimes. But basically, we come together if there's a job to be done, right? So uh, we organize around that and then we move to the next job and it might be the next sort of, you know, task force on that. But ultimately, the committee is the cabinet. It's the government. So they make all the final shots in terms of what's the plan, what's the resource we can use, and, and you know, what are the key initiatives to take forward. So did ever the government of Estonia, because the committee changes after each election, did they ever sort of put digital strategy on hold? Was it ever considered as a, you know, drain on economy because you actually need to invest uh, money and, uh, you know, as they say, you need to invest in education and you don't know when it's going to pay back. And uh, before any election in any country, every party promises us that they will improve the education system. But mm-hmm. it, it costs a lot and it, you cannot see the results very soon. For good or bad, I think Estonian journey can be an inspiration that you don't need to have huge amounts of money to do much in digital space. So we have um, actually had have had to do with quite little in terms of funding. So if you look at even, let's say, share of budget, then uh, if you compare it to most of European countries, for example, our neighbors, then we spend about, you know, percentage point to half a percentage point less from state budget on IT. Perhaps we are underspending, I think. <laughs> but still, you know, we are fully digital like that. So for us, you know, about, let's say, 200 million, 220 million euros a year go to all things government IT. It's nothing in a sort of big GDP sense like that. And this is money that allows us to actually be more efficient and in, in the other part. It's basically investment to save time, to save money, to save work hours within government, within wider economy from that. Basically, if people don't have to queue up, you know, to get something done in a government office, that's time that they can spend, you know, to be productive and produce more GDP, for example. So it's actually investment that pays back is what we have seen. The digital government brings a growth and, and savings dividend for the economy. So in that sense, it's never been a question. And, and the other point, look by this point, after 20 years, whoever comes to government, they have had first-hand exposure and experience about the good that digital can bring. Everybody has been a user of digital services, have seen, you know, how things, how good things are if you can sign everything digitally, how much time it saves. So they don't negate that. But obviously, different governments have different priorities in terms of ambition and the speed in terms of what they want to do things. Some are more digitally prone, some less, but nobody negates the overall journey and, and, and course. So in Lithuania, AI was a buzzword for the last two years, I think, and I have participated in several conferences when people talked about it. Mostly it was about how AI might take our jobs. 
But then I read your report now on the strategy, and it's quite interesting because there are certain keywords uh, that I have missed in these discussions, maybe. So open source, creating things that could be reused or starting point that people can start from easily. It's about public sector. Innovation in public sector often is very slow. And then you have sustainable development, which is very interesting in AI context, and knowledge transfer. Uh, these all things are very core at uh, good business practices, but you already have it in the, in the government. So it's amazing that you use AI as a way to make things more efficient, not just show that this is something that is, uh, you know, popular and that's why we need to put this word on top of it. And you have very small bureaucracy. So you, at some point in the history, uh, the government decided to lay off bureaucracy uh, as, as, as workers and then it was digitalized. So, yeah, do you think that then your policy is basically simplifying everything, even your tax system? Well, I mean, that's, this is part of it. But, I mean, mind you, we still have a lot of bureaucrats in, in office, me included, right, <laughs> by the definition. So, I mean, on the one hand, the fact that we have relied on digital or the fact that we're trying to rely on AI tools now allows us to basically do different things and do other things with the bureaucracy or with the public service and, and, and public sector spending, for example. We Hopefully, we are producing more value differently, right? The fact that we can automate routine stuff means that the same folks or other folks can you know, focus on something else. If we cut back, you know, let's take taxes, right, and, and digital taxation. So the fact that now almost everyone does their taxes digitally themselves, right, means that we can have we have to have only very few people in front office, which means that there's actually more folks who can focus on you know how to make sure that shadow economy doesn't exist and we basically are more better with tax collection in the back office. So basically, more value is being produced by same or people at least the same agency like that, and and that's what we see. But simplification is the name of the game. Look, digital is a tool. So ultimately, it's a, it's a powerful tool. And AI is an especially powerful tool to make interaction with government and the processes of government leaner and simpler, indeed, if we use it right. So could you give us some examples of AI being used in the public sector for our listeners just to imagine how it works maybe already? Sure. Something I already popped in, I think, as an example before. You know, uh, we use now, we have trained machines to do automatic protocols or, or official protocol from parliamentary hearings. Same thing is built for courts. Even last year, that's what you had people, you know, typing up stuff in those meetings, which, you know, to me has always been crazy because that's what my phone can do. But obviously our trick is our language, our little lovely language. Same thing in Lithuanian, I guess. We have had to build this language part ourselves to make machines understand Estonian speech and text. Or second thing, we have trained machines to recognize from satellite imagery if agricultural subsidies are being used uh, properly. Previously, we had to send inspectors around the country blindly, basically, to do some inspections. Now it's a much more uh, targeted approach. We are using AI to um, a machine learning to figure out if cyber incidents might be happening in our networks. We are doing stuff with AI to figure out how to obviously direct traffic better and plan for better in, in uh, let's say, in our capital city in Thailand here, in terms of where to, you know, reroute people or street building and planning and that sort of stuff. So on and so on. We have about 80 to 100 different use cases now being used or built up like that. And what we are, what we're most excited about, and this is not ready yet, it's in development phase, is that 
we have this program we call um, you know, hashtag CritAI, which is about, we envision that interaction with government will be virtual assistant based in the future because we believe that any that virtual assistants will be the interface to access internet information services anyway so we want to make our government ready for that and so basically you know just as we speak with you now here Rota, then basically you know siri or google assistant in my phone can be my interface to the government alerting me when something needs to be done proactively you know with my government or you know i can ask you know hey siri how can i get my passport renewed or you know uh, basically siri please consent my data to be shared or whatever so building that sort of virtual assistant based interface out for all government services and information is also our big thing we are er- first steps in that with simple chatbot stuff but working towards that vision it sounds really good, making information more accessible, not just through the text, but audio as well. Because it is very simple. I mean, just like talking to you now, that's our most natural way of communicating and receiving information as humans, right? So if we can do that with machines in our own language, that would be the most seamless way of interaction with the government too. Yes, for sure. Especially knowing the customer service work where people give are given scripts and they just need to answer certain answers. And if the, there's a complex issue, then they just sort of escalate the issue to another level where somebody Always is there. solving it. Or hand over from agency to agency, whatever. And even that is done more and more by the machines at the back end. This is really amazing that you're already doing it on the government level, as not that many companies here in Germany where I live now have a digital solutions even themselves. More on that, on your e-residency program that actually attracts residents, I have found a number now, you have 70,000 e-residents in Estonia? Mm-hmm. I think it keeps growing all the time. <laughs> so e-residency is something uh, we launched six or, or soon seven years ago now. We basically opened up our digital government and services to the whole wide world. So anyone in the world can apply get our digital identity and through that have access to, for example, setting up and running a company online. So entrepreneurs are our biggest uh, user group in that sense, entrepreneurs who don't want to be bound to a location, who want to basically you know, keep moving around the world, living in different places, whatever, and still need to somehow, to, for example, invoice their services. So all the freelancers, all the micro-entrepreneurs, all the online shops, I mean, that's the sort of uh, target group. And especially those who want to do business in European Union, they can now from a distance set up a company that's EU company through Estonia and then provide the services in a trusted way for European market. So, so e-residency exactly allows all of that to happen. I always used to say that each week, each month, we get more e-residents than there are babies born in the country. So, uh, so we are growing fast as a digital community like that than we do in the physical world. It's crazy. <laughs> I think I was reading that you, you have more the most startups uh, per inhabitant of the capital in Europe, very complex sentence here, but uh, <laughs> you have the biggest number of startups per, per human being in, in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, well, I mean, there's, I think several numbers going around that. The other thing is that as we've had a very strong growth of unicorns. So basically quite a few of them startups are graduating to be, you know, billion dollar or euro plus companies. Right. It's been an amazing journey how our startup community and ecosystem have grown and these guys are disrupting the industries all over the place. But at the same time, you're not following other countries that are creating certain tax environments that becoming like tax havens like Luxembourg that don't really tax the companies. So you still have taxes, but it works. So is there 
certain policy you try to follow that would keep checks and balances, uh, not just uh, try to attract businesses and uh, money without any constraints. Well, so, yeah, we haven't been in a sort of tax competition business. I mean, mind you, there is one perk in Estonian system that, that used to serve us very well, is that if you your tax, if you take profits out of the company, if you reinvest them, then we don't tax you at the point of earning a profit, only if you take dividends out, okay? So that sort of serves that, you know, you can keep growing the company and there's an incentive for that. But yeah, we are in the, with e-residents especially, we are in the business of providing ease of doing business, especially those who want to do it, you know, globally without bound to a location or location free and, you know, across the borders like that. We are not in tax business. For example, if you're an e-resident, you're being taxed in wherever you physically are located at, right? I mean, that country, your residence country or your you know, place of your operation will have the taxes as opposed to us in Estonia. But what we provide you is the ease of doing that. You can roam around, for example, and uh, or come from a third country to European market through us. So that's the sort of stuff. And and our gain is that in that process, you know, you set up jobs here or the e-resident set up jobs here. They use the services by Estonian ecosystem and so on. So that brings revenue back to, from our point of view, they contribute to our economy daily like that. Yes, it's it's quite amazing policy. And uh, I know some entrepreneurs who registered in e-residency in Estonia. Exactly for that. Say Um, hi to them. (laughs) For sure. One of my favorite topics, and it's it's e-voting, and this is what we are now discussing in Lithuania. And uh, last year, I participated in the huge digital campaign for Lithuanian diaspora, encouraging them to vote. And we managed to achieve uh, 36,000 votes in the parliamentary elections. And basically, now we have one parliamentarian who represents Lithuanian diaspora in the parliament. So huge achievements for the diaspora. And now another goal is uh, dual citizenship. But before that, we are lobbying, uh, not me, but diaspora, some of our uh, main leaders uh, lobbying for e-voting. And Estonia is one of the biggest examples of of this achievement. And you already did it in 2005. And uh, no other countries yet in EU managed to establish e-residency. Could you share with us your your secret? What was the secret or few secrets of managing to do it so soon and actually increasing the numbers? So at the beginning, you had 4% of voters and then gradually it increased. And the last election, it was 40% of your citizens already voted online. I think it was even 48%. 48, yeah. Um, uh, just the last time. No, look, but, but there's a few things there. So online voting, well, first of all, it has to be built on a secure foundation. So, I mean, there has to be a widely spread digital identity in the country, right? And and that's also easy to use. So, I mean, um, without that, we wouldn't imagine doing it. I mean, because we had to have a very trusted sort of, you know, connection sort of, you know, with the, between the voter and, and the sort of voting system like that. Identity is the only way to achieve that. Uh, secondly, we have also figured out, you know, a few sort of tricks in the process to just make sure that we can rely on that vote. That, for example, you know, somebody doesn't bribe you or, uh, you know, force you to vote in a particular way, and then you know it wouldn't be free election anymore. So our trick is that you can re-vote any number of times. So you know, if you want to pay me to vote for somebody, I'll happily take the money because I can go, you know, then and re-vote again afterwards. And last vote will only count. So there's a procedural way to make sure that we manage for the risks of what otherwise could be. 
But look, I think so. Digital identity and and sort of the figuring out the man- way to manage the risks in procedures is are two things that have allowed us to make it happen. I think the third thing there is that our luck has been willingness to take risks from leadership, from political and administrative leadership. Nobody had tried online voting in the world when we started. Nobody had tried e-residency in the world when we started. But there was willingness to say, but hey, let's see how to make it work. There might be some risk involved when you have to manage for that, but we will only learn and sort of do that as we start trying out. So in the first elections, I mean, it was a very small-scale pilot. It was local elections at the time. And exactly, like you said, a few percent of people only voted online. But through that, we started, you know, working further, improved it. And now, yeah, almost half of people do vote this way because it's so much more convenient. Just like you said, Lithuanian diaspora, we are all over the world, our communities. We travel, we are busier all the time. And hey, our um, parliament voting is early March. It can be crappy weather. So... There's so many disincentives to to physically go vote somewhere. If I can do it from Fiji, from my office, from my home couch, I'm more inclined to participate. And so what we have seen is that, yes, people uh, have, have shifted from physical to online voting. But that means that also our participation has not fallen like it has done in many other countries in the world. Yes, and uh, not just the weather. Last year we had Corona pandemic and the elections, and um, exactly. and for instance in US as well, people were were talking about it. as election was happening there, and for many people it was important to actually go and be able to see the physical, uh, you know, the paper that they voted. Did you ever discuss this kind of issue or inquiries that if people would like to see their own, you know, ballots after the election in case it was fraudulent? So the way we do it is that you can also trace your vote to an extent in digital sense, right? So basically, and even in the paper voting, I mean, you don't really trace it back to each individual in the end like that necessarily. It depends on your voting system. So, I mean, in the end, it's also a big pile of votes, right? On the papers on the, on the table, so to speak. Same thing in digital sense. I mean, all the way to when votes get counted, you can trace back to, like, is it properly being recorded, right? So uh, we provide your QR code back that then provides the verification for you. Plus, same thing as with the paper voting. Heavily audited. There are observers following how the process is done. I mean, all that sort of stuff. So it's basically following the same sort of procedures as, as physical voting, just in a digital setting. So you a uh, person uses digital signature and yeah. then you record things like time, I guess, location and other, or what exactly do you then record for people when they vote? So basically what we do is that we, we record at the time of voting, we record time and, and decision essentially and who did. And then when it's voting, counting time, we, di- we divide you know, who voted for whom, and we just take the results, sort of, so to speak. So they are split in the sort of system. Everything else, sort of the metadata, is just for statistical purposes. So, for example, we might have the pool of the votes that came in, but we don't tie it back to you then afterwards anymore. So we might know that, you know, for example, somebody voted from Berlin. Uh, it was a female, you know, certain age group, whatever like that. But, you know, we don't know how you voted after. And it's the same thing in the paper world. I mean, you know, in the end, it's a, like I said, it's a pool of papers on the, on the table. Same so thing it, in digital. It's like encryption, I guess, uh, anonymization, encryption, these uh, things. So, Long story short, exactly. <laughs> Actually, as you said, Estonia uh, sort of tried and did a lot of uh, things for the first time. 
But having that kind of approach goes hand in hand with the philosophy of dealing with failure. So what is the philosophy of Estonian government or nation itself uh, of dealing with failure? How do you take it? Well, I think if you'd ask Estonians, we take it bad. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I think we also have still lots to learn there, but it has much improved over time. Look, we have failed miserably in a few times in digital sense as well. And uh, like, you know, when we started with digital prescriptions, they didn't work at first or or now, just recently in the sort of vaccination, COVID vaccination time, there have been a few attempts that haven't worked out. But it has always been if uh, we had tried to make things too complex or secondly, there hasn't been strong, clear business owners, so to speak, as we say, in IT world and digital world behind them. So, you know, digital tools can help to do processes better. But if processes are not designed properly you know digital won't help either right so these are the times when we fail sometimes but my other point is just to say that there's a very simple approach we we follow more in digital government building which is to say that it's the best practices of the tech industry of the startup world start small try stuff experiment scale if it works try again do better if it doesn't you know basically you know fail fast fail earlier fail more for that matter but through that trial and experimentation and iteration you build good stuff and that's how we launched e-residency that's how we have built e-residency that's how we do you know i have done ai stuff now so it's that method itself that actually encourages early and quick failure for the better outcome in the end that has to be the way so do you have some like in any like in businesses and digital projects, there's sort of feedback loop or, you know, lean cycle of like testing and then assessing and then sort of learning from the mistakes or good things. Uh, Is it like actually implemented or imposed in everything you do in different ministries? We are not that perfect. So (laughs) it's not everywhere, but it's more and more. So basically a lot of what is our role in government CI office here is to get these sort of practice everywhere, right? So we are working a lot with our colleagues to advise them, direct them, steer them along this way. And all the best performing agencies already work this way. It's constant iteration, it's constant improvement of their services. And for the leader who failed or broke things, uh, you know, it's about breaking things too. What is the responsibility? And uh, is it the shame or it's more like I'm taking my mistake and then I'm trying again quickly what what we have seen is that we had to clearly distinguish what is the source of failure is it ignorance or even sort of let's say malicious attempt basically you were working against something or is it you fail because in the process of trying and i think there's a very clear difference at least so uh, look if somebody did a poor job because they didn't bother doing it properly or they did something you know for bad on purpose that should be no excuse for that but if earnestly tried, didn't work, you want to try again, that's what's being tolerated more and more. And that's how it should be. So, I mean, we have to also in the public, I distinguish between that. You know, what, why is that a failure? We have to learn from that. Was it ignorance and bad deeds? Or was it that basically, you know, you were just experimenting and innovating? It's very profound and conscious way of dealing with challenges. Thank you for sharing that. And it sort of comes from the startups too, about uh, assessing founders do often talk about uh, yeah. this kind of approach. And in Estonia, you have a lot of them. And what do you think is the reason? Was it the reason, the reason was top-down approach? Or is it more the ecosystem that flourished and then it's more grassroots? No, I, I think 
because in government cannot really take any top-down credit for that. It's been very much bottom-up grown, but obviously then afterwards enhanced by our attempt to build an ecosystem out of this. Somehow, the long story short, we benefited from quite a few things. We had a, always a very strong academic background in, in all things computer science, already from, you know, good, not good, old Soviet days. Uh, so there was, a, you know, basically a generation was brought up from that. What also helped was that, just like you mentioned before, our former ambassador, later president, came back and, you know, we started bringing computers and the internet to the schools. So all those guys who are building unicorns now, or, you know, in government now, myself included, we are children of that generation. We were the kids who got interested in computers in the middle of 90s before, uh, because they were brought to us into our schools. And now we reap the benefits of that. So basically, skilling, and, and that is a very has been the important part. Secondly, we had a luck of very early wins. So obviously Skype was huge for us. The Skype being built in Estonia and, and through that, literally dozens of people gained experience in terms of how to build a global stuff and how to be bold and conquer the world. And they have been now doing second, third rounds of you know unicorns or, or companies themselves. And then only comes the ecosystem. So if that's the pool, that's the foundation on that, then the government has now, through the years, done work to build up a venture capital offering and market to, you know, bring to ecosystem building, to bring the sort of different stakeholders together more, so on, so on. So, you know, all these factors now merge all the way to immigration policy, talent policy, stuff like that. But the beginning is very bottom up. It was having enough smart folks out there who started and building stuff gained experience through building Skypes and others, and then, you know, uh, built the next ones after that. Yes, and it's quite inspiring to think that Estonia basically started as a country in 90s that was basically a very poor country and grew into world-renowned examples. So I think this is a huge example for any country that work of the policymakers and people can be huge benefits and it doesn't require i don't know oil resources or gold <laughs> mines in your country and as a 90s kid as well i would like to hear like tell me more about like how did it look like uh, to study it in school uh, did you just have computers and then you all coded how did it look like i think <laughs> Well, it, it, a lot of it came down to, let's say, I think, what was your predisposition anyway? Were you more interested in gaming and, you know, roaming around the internet or, or did you get into coding like that? But I think it is basically the fun and appreciation of technology that stayed with us, right? Secondly, there's also, back in the day, it wasn't equal around Estonia. Even if computer classes were everywhere, it doesn't mean that everywhere, everywhere there was somebody you know, teaching coding, for example, like it is today. So today we have invested into that as government quite a bit. So what my point is that so in, in bigger cities, obviously, some, you know, hobby clubs grew up where, you know, enthusiast teachers set up coding clubs for, you know, interested guys and girls and stuff. And, and so these are today the unicorn founders, right? So they came from this sort of extracurricular activity. But the fact that the internet was there, I mean, computers were there, I mean, broadened our world. If we didn't become the creator of technology, we became advanced user of that. And that's important too. Not everyone will be a developer. Not everyone will be a com you know, computer girl or guy. But if you're a government official, if you're a company owner, and you, first of all, don't have fear, but secondly, you have ideas about how tech can help you, you will be so much more in terms of you know, transforming your business or your services in government. So that's important too. So what things do you think we should expose our kids? Because our generation now, 
start having kids as well, what should be the technology maybe or ideas we should expose the new generation so we could build another uh, revolution, maybe not just tech, but others. There are two things there. Well, in terms of revolution, I mean, revolutions come from, you know, emerging and next level stuff. But, uh, but I think what is our challenge, and I have three kids myself, is to say that they will be users anyway. Look, late night, I mean, sorry, in the middle of the 90s, our challenge was to become a user first, right? They, you know, literally, they're grown with, you know, things in their hands, as we, as we know. But the challenge there is that how to get them hooked enough to know how to create with technology. And that's coding, that's design, that's algorithmic thinking. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying anything new here. There's lots of work and classes and curriculum building being done around the world, how to do that. We just have to pick it up and bring it to bring that exposure to every child in our countries. Because that will be so critical for them to uh, succeed in any job out there, even if they don't end up in tech industry. In any job, they will require this appreciation of technology and an ability to create with it a, a bit. But for revolution stuff, I think we have to really sort of get the best and brightest interested into the emerging stuff. I mean, be it AI, be it whatever like that. I mean, quantum stuff. I mean, that's that. these are the things where revolutions will come from. And, and what's even more interesting for me is that is I see the biggest sort of stuff clearly happening where different technologies converge, biotechnology and IT, nanotech and IT, I mean, clean tech and IT. So, so the sort of mixing and, and interdisciplinary stuff is where the Swedish spot is at. Yes, even in the nature, like they say, the best part is where like forest meets the field. Yes. And yes, this is where thing. the best. Exactly, exactly. Same sort of logic. So getting them exposed to technology in a wide sense and science in a wide sense, even that is, is perhaps even more important than just crude coding, which everyone should have exposure to. And what about the higher level? So for the countries, and we are talking uh, through Lithuanian Dream Podcast, so Lithuania is a small country, Estonia is a small country. What kind of advantages uh, small countries have uh, in the future? I think we have many advantages. Our biggest barrier is our size, obviously, the, which means it's, it's the natural availability of talent. So we have to figure out ways to grow through things like e-residency or, you know, being attractive for talent to come from abroad otherwise or, or work with networks without diaspora, for example. So we have to somehow increase that flow of talent that is available for us. But otherwise, I mean, obviously, we can uh, move much faster. It sounds like a cliche, but we've seen that's been a trick in Estonia. Uh, if you're small, you decide and act faster. If you take digital government, I've always been asked, so what's the difference between small and big country? It's the speed of decision-making. Because in bigger countries, you have longer chains of command and, and consultation you have to go through. Our chance is to act quickly. We see something on the horizon, we can jump at this opportunity. And if we're small and don't have this ability, well, we lose out. Then we don't have any chance in the world. And what do you think is the role of Estonia as a country who did a lot of firsts in the world? Do you see yourself not just as a leader within the country, but a country as a leader showing, you know, forward to other countries through digital pathway? Is there a responsibility there for Estonia as a digital ambassador for the world? We have always been very happy to share our journey and our lessons learned and Look, before COVID, we used to get a number of delegations daily come in from all around the world to come sort of, you know, see and learn what's been done here. Or the other way around, we, you know, there's now 100 plus countries around the world where Estonian experts and companies have taken our know-how and solutions to, right? So clearly there's a way to share and, and give back. But 
I have to say one thing. I mean, our primary mission and responsibility is still for our citizens and, and residents here and our e-residents around the world, <laughs> which means that it's not been that much a, a clear attempt to be the first at stuff. We have happened to be the first in some things in our attempt to serve our people better with the help of technology. So even if it means a bit of pathfinding and doing stuff that hasn't been tried, that's not the kick of it. We do it to deliver some value for our users. So in, if in the process it means we have to invent something or you know lead a way, so be it. We are not afraid, but that's not the goal in itself. So you basically want to solve the problem, first of all. It's not about the, the credit. It's more the, the problem. Exactly, exactly. We are not in this for the fame. We are in this to literally just you know, make our government work better, for example. And I like the way you put it. We are very pragmatic. We don't, for example, do stuff for the fun of technology. As we spoke about AI before, it's not because AI sounds cool. It can help us solve practical problems in our government and, and get better in our government. And the last question I ask everyone who comes to the podcast, as we are a Lithuanian Dream podcast, what would be your dream about the cooperation between Baltic states or on EU level with other countries? So what would be your dream of bringing countries together, maybe? Yes, we have done first context first, and then, then I'll reply. We have tried to do quite a bit of work on European and also Nordic and Baltic level in bringing governments together, because... Look, Europe is built on movement, free movement of capital, goods, services, people. If data, for example, or you know, digital in the digital world, if we have barriers, then the other freedoms don't work as well. If going to work in another country or live in another country means that you have to resort back to a whole lot of paperwork, it is a barrier to that movement. So that's why we have very much believed that we have to connect governments, connect the digital services connect digital identities between countries for example and we've done some work in this road i think in baltics we can do way more and so we obviously clearly are always very happy if uh, if lithuanian side is ready for that as well <laughs> i think without rhetoric we really believe in this there's there's ways for us neighbors to show a bit of way for the rest of europe but indeed stuff can work across the borders we have done more of that as Estonia with our Nordic neighbors so far, Finland especially, and so on. But yeah, if there's a chance to do it in Baltic level, then we would be only happy to. It's amazing. And uh, I hope our government officials are listening and, yes, cooperate with Estonia, <laughs> the coolest country in the world. Uh, I really, yeah, I'm, I'm very very happy about all the examples I hear about Estonia. I'm very proud because it's a great example of people working hard, being efficient and focusing on the problem and building something that is useful for humanity too, not just for one country. I think you're being too kind with us. So, I mean, yeah, we have a range of things to still fix in as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, next time we should talk about that. Uh, <laughs> But for sure, there are a lot of things you did great. And I think at least e-residency, this is what, not e-residency, yes, this is Lithuania is working now, but e-voting, this is, could be another thing that our countries could learn for sure from Estonia. Next chapter. Thank you so much, uh, Sim, for coming and talking with us about Estonia's example of different digital solutions. I really enjoyed uh, meeting you and talking about all these government projects and policies. I will make sure to include the links uh, in our episode notes. And uh, yes, thank you. And thanks so much. And, and as I said before, then, if there are ways that we can do stuff together, I'm only happy to. I think clearly we always believe that doing stuff together makes us better.
For sure. For small countries, especially uh, cooperation and for big countries in global world, cooperation is the key for the future. For all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, we covered quite a lot of different topics, varying from technology to the philosophy of uh, making decisions and uh, the policy making of a country that is taxing or inviting foreign businesses to come. Uh, for me as Lithuanian, uh, this interview was very important because as Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, as tiny little states next to the Baltic Sea, I think we all share sort of a common feeling of warmness when we see each other. And overall, I'm really cheering for all the countries and policymakers who are doing a great job at managing the taxes, managing technologies and bringing some change, not to their own country, not just to their own country, but for all of us. And I really hope some of the technologies will go beyond the borders, especially e-voting. I'm so cheering for it because these technologies can save so much time, hassle. And as humans, we can solve them. We have the capacity and we can really, really make it. As well, I will leave all the links in the comments. I was doing quite a bit of research, uh, so you will be able to find the report mentioned, the AI strategy report, some videos with the same as well, and some books, uh, sci-fi actually, about the future and how we can imagine it with technology. And I would really encourage all of you to imagine what the future will be. Sometimes it's better to think about the future and think about what we can build together and not just look at the past. So I think in the future I will make more of these kind of interviews where we will ask policymakers and dreamers from around the world to share their experience and tell us how we can live in a better way. So thank you again for joining us and talk to you in two weeks. This was Lithuanian Dream Podcast and my name is Ruta Nokaite and uh, I would like to say thank you to our partners Lithuanian National Radio LRT as well Global Lithuanian Leaders Network GLL Leo Lithuanian Expats Organization Berlin and our team Gabriele, Milda and Sean. Thank you guys and see you in two weeks. <laughs>